the fiery trial. So again, we have this same pattern that we've seen before. Verse 12 is put in the negative, and verse 13 is a positive. There's something that you are not to do and something that you are to do. Don't be surprised, but be joyful. So don't be surprised, that's the negative statement. But, on the other hand, be joyful. Why? Well, first of all, we're not to be surprised in the sense of uh, this verse, the way it's put, to think it's strange that there's a fiery trial trying us, as though it was a strange thing. But instead, rejoice. So don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange, but rejoice. Why? Why do I rejoice in sufferings? That's our question. But as usual, in First Peter, we come to it gradually. It's not something that uh, is forced upon us immediately. There's a word that says, not before we're told not to think it's strange concerning this trial. And that word is the word beloved. It's a very important word. It appears in one other place in First Peter, in chapter 2, in verse 11, as the Apostle Peter is writing, and he tells us about the fact that we are strangers, sojourners, and pilgrims. And we're supposed to abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against our soul, and keep our conduct honorable among the Gentiles. He tells us that because we are beloved, because we are God's people, those who are loved by him. That's a difficult message. We have our deepest desires are often warring against our soul. And we're introduced to that message with the word beloved. Because the word of God is telling us that this is something that we are to understand because of who we are. We are those who are loved by God. This is a word that expresses a lot of affection, intimacy. It's a father-like word. We're being told to not think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. We're told not to think it's strange because we're, we're very tempted and often we really are surprised at trials that appear in our lives. We're told not to be surprised, but we are surprised. And we're told not to think it's strange, but to instead to rejoice. You know, that, that idea of surprise was given to us earlier in the chapter 2. It was the surprise of the pagans uh, in chapter 4 and verse 4 that, they don't, that we don't participate in the same uh, lifestyle that they engage in. They think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They think you're kind of strange because you don't participate in the same kind of lifestyle as, as they do. But now it's the reverse. It's, it's the believer who thinks that it's strange, at least is tempted to. What does that look like when you think that your fiery trial is strange? Well, maybe it's the question, why? Why, Lord? Or maybe it's wondering where he is. Where are you? 
I seem to be going through some things and I don't understand. This is unfamiliar territory. Where are you? Why are you doing this to me? We can ask these questions when we're experiencing hostility, when we're shut out, when we're persecuted, and generally when we suffer. We tend to ask these questions. But we need to remember that Jesus said that we would experience these things. John 15 and verse 20, that passage that we read before, says this. Jesus says, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. We are not greater than our master. We're not greater than Jesus Christ. In other words, able to escape persecution, able to skirt around it when it came upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, the Lord, Jesus, experienced amazing persecution. Persecution that is actually beyond our abilities to endure. We know this because of the way that the disciples abandoned him and fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane and denied him at his trial. The Lord Jesus Christ was going through territory that his disciples were not prepared to handle. But verse 13 tells us something amazing. Verse 13 tells us that you partake of Christ's sufferings. Verse 13 is telling you that you are in a tight fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, so close that you actually partake of his sufferings. Now think of what it's, is said about the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9. Uh, his name is Saul, and he's going to persecute the church, and he's stopped on the road by this light. And the Lord Jesus says that he is the one that Saul is persecuting. Why does he say that? He says that because of the tight relationship that believers have with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. To persecute the church, to persecute believers, is to persecute Jesus Christ. And if we think it's strange, the Bible repeats it, says it in another place. 1 John 3.13 puts it very clearly and simply, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Do not marvel. Don't think it's strange. You're joined to Jesus Christ. You partake of his sufferings. They persecuted him. A disciple is not greater than his master. They will persecute you. You go through fiery trials. But what about that term, fiery? Fiery trial. Why is that term being used? It's actually an echo of something that we saw earlier on in the book, uh, in First Peter, in verses 6 and 7, when uh, the Word of God says this, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Grieved by trials so that your faith is tested by fire. In other words, your faith is made pure by this fiery trial. The impurities are removed. It's a purifying process. That's what's in view. Think of what it says 
along these lines, think of what it says in Proverbs 27 and verse 21, where the word of God says this, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold. And a man is valued by what others say of him. That's a surprising verse. The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold. And a man is valued by what others say of him. In other words, when people praise you, it shows your character. That's interesting. It's talking about the refining pot. It's talking about a purifying process. But what's in view is praise. You see, when we're praised by people, it tends to reveal who we are. And that's the flip side of the trial. It's the same kind of purifying process. But in this case, it's, it's the, the exposure of who we are through praise. Well, trial works the same way. It's the more difficult kind. We prefer the praise, but the trial actually reveals who we are too. You see, we are actually being formed, as 1 Peter tells us, into a temple. 1 Peter 2 uses this language in verses 4 to 6 when it says that we're coming to the Lord Jesus Christ as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're living stones. You're part of a temple. And God has brought you to this place through a living stone, one who is rejected by men, who is the cornerstone of the temple. That passage that we read from Malachi puts it this way. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. God is coming to his temple, Malachi says. And who can endure? Who can stand? But the next verse says, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. What's God saying? He's saying that he is purifying people. In this case, the sons of Levi. He's purifying them. He's purging them. He's making them more pure. If people are able to be purged in that way, then we understand that people are able to receive the purifying work of God, the work of God that is done like refining silver and gold is done. In other words, you are receiving the purifying presence of God as you receive Jesus Christ, as you receive the Holy Spirit, as you're being made into the temple of God, you're receiving the purifying presence of God. And that is what will lead you through trials in a way that makes you better. How does that work? Well, we have an example of how trials are used in this way. If we look at James chapter one and verse two, James chapter 1 and verse 2 says this, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, 
knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. There's one thing that trials produce. The testing of our faith produces patience. That's part of the purifying work of God in trials, producing patience. But here in 1 Peter 4 and verse 12, the purification that's in view has to do primarily with our mindset. You see, we tend to think it's strange that we should be going through this trial. What is the point of this trial? We ask. So that you can know that it's not strange for God to purify you through trials. That's the first. It's, it's right on the surface of it, but it's, it's a basic lesson. It's not strange for God to do this. He's done it with the sons of Levi. He's mentioning it in Proverbs 27, 21. He mentions it in James chapter 1 and verse 2. Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. And we're already told in 1 Peter in these couple of places that we looked at that your faith is being tested like gold. It's not strange. It's actually a privilege. We know that it's a privilege because of what it says in Acts chapter 5, uh, verses 40 and 41, when the apostles were beaten and commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus Christ and then let go. How did they respond? Verse 41 of Acts chapter 5 says, they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy. It's a privilege. It's a privilege to be counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ. That's what the apostles understood. This is a very different perspective from the world. Very, very different. Shame for Jesus? That's a privilege. And that, you see, he is getting it. That is the understanding that the Holy Spirit would have us take. That it's not strange that God would purify me in this way. I'm being made different from the world. That's what is happening. It's not strange. In fact, I am being made different than the world. I am being made strange to others. But the fiery trial itself is not strange. It's not a strange thing that's happening to me. In fact, it's a means by which I should rejoice. In chapter 1, Peter spoke about being tested by fire, and here he speaks of a fiery trial. In other words, the Lord is testing hearts. We are being tested. Like in Proverbs 27, we're tested by what others say of us, by praise, the way that refiners purify metal. And this is the work of suffering, a fiery trial testing you by showing that certain things are not strange. Here's an example of something that's not strange. Persecution. Slander for the name of Jesus Christ. Verbal abuse because of the name of Jesus Christ. False accusations. When you experience these things, don't fret. But rejoice because you are being made different than the world. You're focusing on Jesus Christ. Now, the second point is more positive. In verse 13, it's telling you something that you are to do instead. You're not to think it's strange. It's said twice. 
But now in verse 13, it says, Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. You see, it's not enough simply to stop doing something, which is thinking that the trial is strange. The word of God actually pushes us in the direction of doing something in its place. We're supposed to not think that it's strange, but instead to rejoice. To rejoice to the extent that we partake of Christ's sufferings. That when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. I want to ask you a question. What is the pattern of the life of Jesus Christ? What is the general pattern of his life? We get an answer as the Lord Jesus speaks to his disciples in Luke 24, when he's on the road to Emmaus and they don't recognize him, even though he's been raised from the dead and he is walking with them on the road. And he says to them in Luke 24, verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. See what Jesus does. He gives us the big picture here. He shows us that his life goes from suffering to glory. That's the pattern of the life of Jesus Christ. What was it they didn't understand? What was it that they didn't see? The big picture. The big picture that Jesus Christ just laid out. The pattern of Christ's life from suffering to glory, from humiliation to exaltation. The pattern of from the cross to the grave to the skies. The pattern of the life of Jesus Christ. If you don't have the first part, suffering, you can't get to the second part. You see, this is the pattern of the life of Jesus Christ, and it's the pattern of people that are joined to him. He has been crucified and raised, so that this pattern will be impressed on your life. Notice, though, that it's not as though the Word of God is saying, well, okay, <clears throat> stop thinking that it's strange, and, and just, you know, verse 13, buck up. I mean, get over it. You know, we, we could imagine the Word of God saying that to us because sometimes we need to hear it. Buck up. You know, stop being such a crybaby. You know, think about what people are experiencing in the third world. Think about what ex people have experienced in times past. You know, think about that. No, it's actually a beautiful thing that's being unpacked for us. We're being told to rejoice, and then we're given the reason why. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, so that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. You see, this is double good news. It's good news on two levels. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. You have someone with you. You have someone who suffered before you. You partake of his sufferings to a certain extent. And when his glory is revealed, you will be glad with exceeding joy. Your joy will get even greater. When you suffer, and we have to say this carefully, but it's there in Acts 9. When you suffer, Jesus is the one who is suffering 
in that sense. He's tied to you in order to bring you home. He prays for you all of the time at the Father's right hand. He is interceding for you. And he participates in the things that you are going through. He has already actually gone through them even more. We know that because there are these very important words in verse 13 that we need to look at carefully. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That opens for us a level of understanding that we need to have. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. In other words, to the degree that you share in them. In other words, you don't share in all of Christ's sufferings. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. And whatever sufferings we do experience, Jesus shares in them. So we don't experience the full range of the sufferings of Jesus Christ, but what we do experience, Jesus shares in. And we are those who partake in the suffering that he endured for us. In other words, Jesus is your divine resource in suffering. He's been there ahead of you. He's there as a guide to lead you through. He's the shepherd who is designed to bring you through. And that means that whatever you experience in the arena of suffering, Jesus Christ is able to sweeten it. He's able to make it into an experience that you can encounter with joy. Otherwise, the word of God would not talk to you about joy two times in verse 13. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. When the devil is trying to throw Jesus off uh, of his track from suffering to glory, he tried to get him to grab the glory first. Satan offered Christ things that only the Messiah could obtain in Luke chapter 4, for example. And he had to resist those temptations, specifically as the Messiah. But the temptation was to grab the glory first without the suffering. And that's our temptation too. But we need to see this pattern, and we need to see that this pattern is covered by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has gone beyond us, and that he is a sure guide to lead us home. He's a sure guide to lead us home because he's already encountered Satan in this area. He's already encountered those who tried to dissuade him on the way to the cross, including Peter, amazingly enough, one that the Holy Spirit is using to write this letter. The temptation to experience the joy of his position, the exalted position without the suffering, that was Satan's lie. And we, like Christ, have to see the pattern. We have to suffer before we physically see Christ and we receive the joy that's all the greater. We're going to be set free. There's a, a great verse in Romans 8, 21 that says that we will have the glorious liberty of the children of God. Romans 8, 21. Our glory is going to last forever. It's worth any trial. And when this glory shall be revealed you also will be glad with exceeding joy. It will be a new level of joy, a joy that you can't quite take in now, beyond the boundaries of your current joy. Romans 8.17 says that if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, then we may also be glorified together. Isn't that a beautiful word? Together with Jesus Christ, glorified 
together with each other, together with all the joint heirs with Jesus Christ, glorified. Isn't that going to be joyous? Far beyond our ability to take in. So what we learned this afternoon is that it's not strange that we suffer. It is for purification to make us better. We can rejoice now because we have Christ helping us. We have a model. We have a guide. We have one from whom we get our strength. And this suffering leads to glory. And in glory, your your rejoicing will exceed the boundaries of your current joy. In other words, right now, you can't handle all of the joy that is in store for you. And if you go through the suffering joined to Jesus Christ, you will be made fit for that joy. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the knowledge that is given to us that to some extent we are partakers of Christ's sufferings. We cannot atone for the sins of another person. We cannot experience the fullness of your wrath in the way that the Lord Jesus Christ did. We cannot know what it was like for him to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we can know that there is a pattern from suffering to glory of the life of Jesus Christ, and it is designed to be our pattern too. The pattern that's given to us is those who are united to Jesus Christ. And in fact, he's given to us to guide us on this pathway that we might actually rejoice that we are going through sufferings together with him, together with other believers, together with those who are joined to him, and that you might expand our capacity through the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and in our new resurrection bodies to take in the exceeding joy that you will give to us in glory. And so knowing these things, knowing the course of our lives, knowing the pattern of the lives of men and women and boys and girls who are united to Jesus Christ, we ask that you would grant us the grace that we would not think it's strange that we're going through fiery purifying trials as though this is something that is outside of your plan or something that we should question. Instead, give us the grace that we would look around and see the Lord Jesus Christ shepherding us through them. That we would see the character and the work of Jesus Christ being formed in our lives. That you would give us the patience that's referred to in James 1-2. That you would make us better in our sufferings and more like Jesus, that you might give us more joy than we can take in now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.